Ephesians 3. We're going we're gonna to finish up our study in Ephesians for this semester. Kind of hard to believe. Um, we're not finished with the book, but we're finished with the first half of the book. We'll, we will finish with that, Lord willing. Well, this last week, maybe a week and a half, I've been reading a short biography of, of Hudson Taylor. And uh, I'm not that familiar. I know it's pretty bad. I'm a pastor. I'm not that familiar with Hudson Taylor. But uh, I came across his, this, it's called a sh- the, oh man, I don't even remember the title. The Secret Life of Hudson Taylor, I think, or The Secret of Hudson Taylor, something like that. Do you guys know what that title is? If you do, shout it out and help me because I'm, I'm struggling. Anyway, it's a short biography. I think it's by his son um, of his life. And uh, I've been reading that. Uh, and historians agree that Taylor was arguably the most influential missionary to inland China. And I'm only about a third of the way through it at this point, but what I've read so far has been enough to convict me and uh, stimulate me to seek ways to imitate this man. It's astounding to think of all that, he's accom- all that he did accomplish in the short 50-some-odd years that he was in China. And really so far, up to this point, two things have stood out to me about Hudson Taylor. The first thing is that he, he just very simply and basically trusted Jesus. In every situation, he was aware of Christ's presence. He had a glorious view of the, of the sovereign God, and he understood that he was dearly and graciously loved by him. If we could say it differently, he had an intimate communion with the living Christ in all the situations of his life. And the second thing that has stood out to me is that he simply depended on the God he knew. So he knew God, and then he depended on him. He he trusted him. He asked God for what he needed, and he sought to accomplish God's mission and depended on God to provide him the spiritual and physical resources that it would take to to see it through. So behind all the accomplishments was a weak man, a weak man who depended on a very great and capable God. And God answered his prayers and did, to use the language of our text today, far more exceedingly or far beyond what he could ever ask or imagine. And to put it simply, Hudson Taylor communed with Christ and asked him for things. And that was the engine that powered his life. And he's an example worth following. Well, today we're going to hear the prayer of another influential missionary, uh, the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see that the kind of prayer that God regularly answered in his ministry, the prayer that kind of made him so effective in, in the missionary enterprise. We're going to see what was on Paul's heart for the church at Ephesus, what Paul desperately desired the Lord to accomplish in them and among them. Paul wanted them and and you and I today to experience what he experienced. He wanted them to experience the the intimate and growing communion that he had with the risen Christ. And he wanted the church to grow in in the knowledge of his love. And because Paul knows that, that as God grants this, that we will be transformed into loving others like Jesus. We're going to be filled, Paul says, with the very fullness of God himself. And this is this Paul's and Christ's vision for us at, at Timberlake, and specifically here in Boundless, um, in our ministry together. So, 
Uh, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Ephesians, so let's just quickly orient ourselves to what's going on here. This prayer in chapter 3, starting in verse 14, uh, this prayer brings us the first half of his letter to a beautiful conclusion. He kind of wraps it up nicely in, in this prayer. And as you know, Paul spent the first three chapters of the letter telling us of the profound blessings that we've received in Christ. I mean, that's, he's been detailing that out for us. He says that we were dead in our sins, but God resurrected us as his new humanity through the gospel. And now we are his new temple, the place where his, his presence, the very presence of God dwells on the earth. So just to get, us, get that back in our minds, look with me in, in chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And this house is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also, Gentiles are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So he's talking about this new humanity that is, in effect, a new temple that God has now, is now dwelling in, which is evocative of that whole Old Testament strand of God dwelling with his people, first in the garden, then in the tabernacle, then in the temple, and then now ultimately um, in his people, as we await the, the new creation. And in, three, in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul begins to pray in light of this. He begins to pray in light of this reality. Look in 3.1. For this reason, I, a prisoner of, for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he, he breaks off here. He breaks off into a, a digression to talk about his role in the temple building project. And we looked at that uh, at length the last time that we were in Ephesians. So just a way we could, uh, let's see, no, did I miss that? Let's see here, I may have got the slides out of order, yep. So I'll have to go back here. So basically, he's got this statement about the temple, then he begins to pray in chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, and he's almost to, to launch in this prayer, but then he goes on a digression for 12 verses. And then in verse 14, he picks it back up with the original intention to pray. And that's the intro to our, our text today. Now, to understand this prayer that he's about to launch into, we need to make one very important observation, which is why I'm kind of belaboring this, this temple thing. What was the very last thing Paul left us with before his digression at the end, at the end of chapter 2? See it on the screen right there. It's the text we just read. Right? Grows into a holy temple. This temple imagery. That's the very last thing he left us with. He said we were God's new temple growing and being built up as such. Then he digressed and now he picks up where he left off. And in this prayer, here's the key. All right, key observation. This prayer uses temple imagery. In other words, his requests are framed up in a temple kind of language. It's kind of the overlay that, that, that this prayer has. And that's going to give us some insight into some really debated uh, 
aspects of this prayer. It's going to give us, give us some insight into that. So let's read our text together, and I'll, I'll point out this temple imagery as, as we do that. Close your eyes. Going backwards. All right. <laughs> For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So there's a lot of requests tucked into that passage. We're going to explore those today. Then there's a benediction here, or a doxology, where he just sort of explodes with praise at the end of, the end of this prayer. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So throughout this beautiful prayer, very profound prayer, as we'll see, it's just overlaid with with temple imagery. Now I just want to point a few of these out to you. Some of them may uh, not be as convincing by themselves, but when you view it together, it's, it's pretty compelling. Paul says that he bows his knees before the Father. That's the first one in my mind. And that's just an expression for intercessory prayer. Now, we would think, you know, because of some of the pictures, you know, the traditional guy bowing his knee, that that's a common posture for prayer, but it's really not. Not in the Bible. Typically, prayer was standing with your arms lifted up. I mean, there's lots of different postures, but here Paul says that he's bowing his knee. And I think this may have to do with Second Chronicles 6.13, where Solomon, in his dedicatory prayer for the temple builds this sort of platform, he stands on it, begins to pray, and then he drops to his knees. Um, and that's really an area that we see there. So Solomon, in, in, his, in his temple dedication, back in the Old Testament, very similar context, he's bowed, and I think that may be in Paul's mind. So here, Paul is taking this role, as, as we just heard, back in, back in the beginning of chapter 3, how he, he has a, a particular role in this temple-building project as the apostles of the Gentiles, he's now interceding for this temple. Uh, Similarly, there's a lot of differences, but similarly um, evocative of of Solomon in his dedication of the temple. So, next is that he appeals for strength to the church by the riches of of God's glory. And this theme of of glory, we're going to see it happen at least two other times in this prayer, is is evocative of the glory that filled the temple and the tabernacle um, after it was built and erected. And it was a a signal that God was pleased with his work and was going to meet with Israel and then demonstrate itself to the nations through through the glory, the Shekinah glory that filled the temple. So that's just a a foretaste that that Paul's appealing to the strength for the church based on the the riches of the glory that are are in, in God. And then a little bit later, he asks that Christ will dwell in our hearts through faith. And this word for dwell is the same word, or same root word, back in chapter 2, verse 22 that we just saw, that we're being built together into a dwelling place for God. Now Paul uses the verb that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. So Christ here is pictured, the Messiah is pictured as the Lord who descends into his temple 
and the temple is pictured as our hearts. So again, just temple imagery. He asks, or he says that we're rooted and grounded in love. This word for grounded is the same word, or a similar word to the foundation word that we just saw earlier in chapter 2, that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Just similar wording. So again, it's building imagery. And again, another request that, that, he would, that we would know the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. We'll talk about that. But that's, again, just I want you to note the dimensional language here of a building. Um, so this is, this is informing Paul's prayer for the church, the new temple. And lastly, in, in terms of the prayer request, he asked that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And when you combine this, what does it mean to be filled with the fullness? We see that he asks for glory, that God would get glory in the church. Those two things go together, like the Shekinah glory filling the tabernacle and temple. So all I'm doing is just pointing out here, overview, that there's temple imagery going on in this text, and that's going to help us to to interpret it. Does that make sense? Okay. So in, in the passage today, In our passage, Paul uh, is praying a prayer of empowerment for this new temple. A prayer of empowerment for this new temple, which is you and I. And we're going to zero in on his requests. So think of these requests as serving as like a model for you. Things that should be, ought to be in our hearts and being expressed to God in prayer. Um, these are the most important things we could possibly pray. And they should, be, um, it, it should be a target for us as well to shape what we desire most and what we desire to see most in the church. They were on the apostles' heart, and they were next to Christ's heart. So um, if we pray these things and really understand them and begin to ask God for these kinds of things in the midst of our boundless ministry in our church, we're going to see incredible transformation. Um, and so we're just going to look at some of these requests here. I'm calling them three interconnected requests. Because they interconnected was the best word I could think about. Um, but they essentially build. They, they build on each other. In other words, Paul's asking for three things, but they, they're in an order, a particular order. And we'll see that as we go. So request number one is Paul asks that God would grant increased intimacy between the church and Christ. Christ and the church. Increased intimacy. He, he, the first thing he asks God for in this prayer is that we would be empowered, that we would be strengthened or energized for greater intimacy with Christ. So, we'll, we'll check this out. I've, I've kind of laid it out for you so we can see very clearly what the requests are grammatically. All right. So he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that, here's request number one, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, what? to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And what does it produce? Being rooted and grounded in love. So that's His first request, is that that God, the way I would summarize this, is that God would give us empowerment for increased intimacy with Christ. You see that. He asks for strength, right here. Strengthened with power for a purpose. 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This means we need strengthening because we're all inherently weak in our relationship with Christ. You think about that? Probably you say, yeah, I understand that. (laughs) But do you realize how weak you are in, in that relationship? I'm becoming increasingly aware of my own weakness in even just my ability to abide in Christ. Without God's power, our growth in knowing Christ won't happen. But the encouraging thing is that God desires us to ask for his strength in this department. So what Paul's doing here is interceding for the church that we would be strengthened to, to abide. And in this context, the strength is so we can more fully commune with Jesus. I think that's amazing. God wants to strengthen you so that he can more fully commune with you. He wants to enlarge your capacity to abide with him. To, to walk with him, to know him. He wants this empowerment. He's channeling that empowerment to that end. And as we just keep moving through this verse, just notice a few facets of it. Okay, Paul asked that God would give us strength according to the riches of his glory. See that? And this is incredibly encouraging because Paul's not just asking someone who is weak or poor to give us strength. It's just the opposite. God is wealthy and glorious power and he loves to impart it to weak and humble people. People who just ask for it. It's incredible. And how does this strength come to us? He says it, it comes to us through the Holy Spirit. So this is going to help us with this next phrase about Jesus dwelling in us. Okay, This is not what that's talking about. We have the Holy Spirit. Paul clearly says that here. That's abiding with us, dwelling in us. And he get, he's giving us power. He's imparting that, mediating that power to us when we ask for it. We were given the Spirit at conversion. And one of the things he does is to mediate strength from God to us when we ask for it. And where are we strengthened? So what's, the, what's, what's, what's being strengthened by the Spirit? Well, it's not our physical biceps. Sorry, dudes. As much as you would prefer that. Me too. But, I shouldn't say prefer. I would much prefer to have my inner man strengthened. Okay, this is exactly what he's saying here. The most fundamental and unseen part of us is what this inner man is referring to. It's where we feel. It's where decisions are made. And and God's strength comes to us, he says, through the Spirit, apart from our circumstances. It's not contingent on whether you're crushed by your exams or not. But it comes to you through the Spirit in your inner person. But why are you empowered? Why does Paul ask for this? Well, he asks for intimacy's sake. You see this? So Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul asks God to strengthen us so that Christ can more fully, more intimately, and more comprehensively abide in us. Now, you might be thinking, hey, wait a minute, Clay. You just said, I thought, well, I thought Jesus already abides in us, right? Like, doesn't he already dwell with us um, in conversion? Well, yes, in a sense. We've been given the Spirit, like, just like we said. But here he's talking about something different. He's talking about Christ abiding with us, being at home in our hearts because we're submitted to him by faith. That's the idea. This is relational language. It's friendship language. It's dynamic. It's not static. And it's a progressive abiding that grows as our faith grows. You see this? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts. How? Through faith. 
So as, as the Lord took up his residence in the Old Testament temple, here it's described profoundly as the Messiah taking up residence in your heart. This is very different than the perversion of this that talks about asking Jesus into your heart for salvation. It's not what this verse is talking about. This is talking about sanctification. Christ abiding in your heart. And it's profound. He's in the inner recesses. He's in the most influential and intimate place in your heart. He's in your inner sanctum, if you will. Influencing your desires, your aspirations, your decisions, and your values. Christ is there in a mysterious way. And his redemptive influence over you grows, Paul says, as you learn to trust him more. That's the idea. He dwells in your hearts by faith. So as you learn more of his promises to you, more of his character toward you, more about his presence with you from the word, as you do that, your faith grows. And you come to trust him like Hudson Taylor in all the situations of your life. Because you know that he's with you and he's working all things for good. There's nothing that escapes that. You become more and more aware of his presence, more aware of his friendship, more understanding of what his friendship's like toward you, more aware of his love. You know more of what pleases him and what doesn't. And so another way to put this is, is Christ, enthroned on your heart, drives out the idols of his temple progressively, right? He makes your heart his comfortable home, renovating it room by room, as we abide in Him. And Paul is praying that we have power to grow in our intimacy, in our intimate relationship with Christ. He's praying that God would empower us to that end. And that's what we should pray for one another. And this inevitably is going to have an effect on us. He says, um, we will be stabilized in love. That's the way I would, I would say this, being rooted and grounded in love. So I, I've actually got an outline here. Sorry, guys. There's empowerment for intimacy that yields a stabilization of your life in, in love. We're to, we're to be stabilized in love, being rooted and grounded in love. That's the idea. Is it's flowing out of these requests. So this empowerment, in other words, for more communion with Christ, results in love increasing in our lives. The increase has a stabilizing effect. It roots us and it grounds us. Okay? And I think that's Paul's idea here. Now, if you're reading your Bible carefully, if you have an ESV or an NASV or a New King James, it sounds like this phrase goes with what comes after it, not before it. Do you see that? Look, in, uh, look at the end of verse 17. The ESV has... So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then it says, that you, and then comma, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. So it sounds like it goes with what's following it. But I don't think that's the right understanding of the grammar of this text. I think it flows out. I mean, they're connected, but it flows out of what he just said. So it's a result of this intimacy, of, of, our, of our growing intimacy with Christ. And this can become important and how it sets us up for the next request. Okay, so just it's, that's gonna, that might be a little confusing for you, but most translations go that way. 
But I don't think it's the best understanding of, of the grammar. I think it goes with what came before it. So what Paul is saying is that as we grow in intimacy with Christ, he's going to root us in his love. And I think, what does this mean? What does it mean to root us in his love? Well, it means, I think, two aspects of this. Receiving his love and giving it out. Okay? Receiving it and expressing it. As we learn to receive his sacrificial love, we'll inevitably learn to give it out. It's the way it works. You haven't, if you're not giving it out, you haven't received it. You haven't received it to the fullness that you need to receive it. And that's going to, be, that's going to permeate, that permeates Ephesians, that, that one principle. As we learn to receive a sacrificial love, we will inevitably learn to give it. We're going to sacrifice for the good of others like Christ has sacrificed for us. And Paul says this stabilizes us in the Christian life. In other words, it, it, it's the foundation upon which we grow to maturity. You don't necessarily, at this stage, need more knowledge. You need to act on the love that you've been shown in sacrificial love. This is the foundation. We build our lives on this, and that's the imagery here. So we could, we could summarize this first request like this. Paul asks for God to empower us for greater intimacy with Christ, which roots us in love, in his love. So just think this through with me. This, this kind of request is central on Paul's heart. It's what Christ wants to see increasing in the church, in Timberlake, in Boundless. So it just begs one question. Does it permeate your prayer life? Is this what you pray about? Do you perceive your own weakness and inability to commune with Christ apart from his power? Do you plead with God for greater intimacy with Christ? which means greater repentance, greater joy, greater peace, greater acts of self-sacrificing love. In Paul's mind, this is the most important thing we could pray for. And that's because it leads to even greater things. We could stop here, right? We could say, okay, we're done. Like We need to meditate on this. We need to incorporate this into our prayer lives. But he keeps going. And we find that the greater things uh, that are led to is Paul's second request. Increased intimacy leads to increased insight. Increased intimacy with Christ leads to increased insight. Paul continues to pray that we would grow in our understanding really in two areas. He wants us to have insight in, in two particular areas. He goes on to unfold. He asks, well, let's just read it. He says, second request, building on the first, that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. Okay, it's kind of weird, but there's no breadth, length, height, and depth of what, right? It doesn't give us that, but we'll talk about that. To comprehend that and additional thing to know or have strength to comprehend is to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So greater intimacy with Christ leads to greater insight in these particular two areas. 
So what is he talking about here? Increased insight, number one, into the vast dimensions of his temple. Now, I'm pretty sure about this, but I don't want to give a caveat here. This might not be, this is not, definitely not the only interpretation of this odd phrase. But I'm fairly confident of this. Most people interpret it as another way of talking about Jesus' love. That it's height, length, breadth, depth. You know, it's just so big and wide. And that's definitely true. But I think what he's talking about here is, is more in tune with the temple language that we've just seen. And so, anyway, let me, let me express this. So as we grow in, in intimacy with Jesus, he helps us to understand with more clarity, I think, his temple building project. Okay? What does this mean? Well, I think it means that he helps us understand how wide it is, its breadth and length of this new temple. Breadth and length are, are you know, kind of linear. In other words, it encompasses Jew and Gentile, slave and free, Male and female, poor and rich, etc., etc., etc. One group is not prioritized over the other, and we are profoundly one in this new and expanding temple. Remember, he just said that back in chapter 2 about the temple, that we are a growing temple in the Lord? It grows. It's, it's growing. It's being built. So it, he wants us to perceive, I think, what he's saying is that we grow in intimacy with Christ, we're going to perceive the, the nature of this temple i.e. the church. We're going to see that it's expanding over traditional horizons into closed countries. And there's no room for pride or division in this temple because it's built, it's unified. It's built in unity around the Messiah. So in, in one, from one standpoint, the temple is expanding dimensionally and, and the end of the earth is its domain. So that's where it's headed. So, that, man, you can just see how this motivates things, right? Motivates missions, motivates church planting, motivates us to take risks for the sake of the gospel because as Christ, we grow in intimacy with Jesus, he begins to help us see what he desires for his temple. It's length and breadth. It is worldwide. But that's not all he says. He says he, he, he helps us to understand as we grow, he helps us to understand this temple's height and depth. Meaning, I think, that we are designed to grow to full maturity. So not just to, to keep going, like just make more converts, but to take those converts and deepen their faith. He's going to go on in Ephesians 4 to talk about how we are, are called to grow up to maturity. He calls it the full stature, or the full height of Christ. In Ephesians 4. And then to plumb down into the depths of his love for us. It's bottomless. So in other words, as we grow in intimacy, request number one, as we grow there with Christ, he helps us to get our minds around what he intends for us in the church. To expand, on the one side, and to deepen. To multiply and to mature. As we grow with Christ we inevitably come to love his bride, the new temple, the church. And if you don't, you're not committed to it, then it reveals that you don't really know what's at Christ's heart. You need to get more intimate with Jesus because you're going to see what's on his heart in the church, the dimensions of this new temple that he is building.
man, there's so much here. We could just keep unpacking, but we're going to stop on that one. There's another element of increased insight that Paul asks for us, and it's an incredible request. He asks for increased insight into the mind-blowing depth of the love of Christ for us, for you, for me. It is bottomless, and he wants us to know it, which reveals Christ's heart for us to know his love. To know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge Paul implies here that the love of Christ, that the love that he has for us, is infinite and inexhaustible. It's infinite and inexhaustible. You cannot exhaust it. It it surpasses our ability to fully understand it, but we can grow in our understanding, in particular our experience of his love. And it's Christ's intention, as revealed by this request, that we grow in our understanding of the love that Jesus has for us. Because it will transform you. Paul's definitely not, definitely here not talking about anything less than intellectual knowledge. So I'm not going to disparage that, okay? It's not less than intellectual knowledge. We need to know with our brains all that God has revealed to us about Christ's love for us in Scripture. And if we don't know with our brains, we won't be able to receive it and rest in it and yield to it by faith. But it's more than intellectual knowledge. He's talking about our experience of the love of God. That we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That we've relied on Him and found Him faithful. And specifically, and here's the kicker, that we have loved sacrificially like he has loved us. That's why the ordering of these requests is so important. Don't miss this. First, Paul asks that we are strengthened to abide in Christ, learning to love like him, being rooted and grounded in love. As we walk with Jesus, trusting and imitating and obeying him, In small ways, he gives us increased experiential knowledge of his love. And it only works that way. He increases our capacity to understand and experience his love as we love. It happens over time as we pray, as we trust, and especially as we sacrificially obey and suffer for him. So, just to tease this out for you a little bit, I think you'll see how this works practically. You're walking with Christ, abiding in Christ, then somebody sins against you. You know, like, oh, wow, that really hurt, you know? Christ calls you to forgive that person like you've been forgiven by Jesus. And you say, I can't can't do that. You know how badly they hurt me? I need to pay for that. And it becomes incredibly hard for you to forgive, especially if it's a deep sin against you, becomes incredibly hard to forgive and release the person from the debt that you perceive that they owe you. You want to get your pound of flesh. But the Lord won't let you go. And He forces you to work through the process of how to forgive this person. And in the process of actually doing the forgiving and loving of this person, 
you realize that how you feel toward this person is how God feels when, when you realize that, that you've sinned against him or when he, when he, when, after you've sinned against him. And it's so much more than what you feel toward that particular person. And yet, out of the sheer love and mercy of God, he forgave not just one offense that wounded him, but all of your offenses. And to enable him to forgive you, he humbled himself and died for you. Do you see how new vistas are beginning to open for you in the love of Christ? How did that happen? As you choose to forgive the person who wronged you, Christ is enlarging your capacity to understand his forgiveness toward you. As you sacrificially obey, you are learning the fellowship of Christ's suffering, and he increases your experience of his love. That's why some of our most profound moments of awareness of Christ's love and the joy that we have in him are found in moments of suffering. And the most encouraging thing here is that God in Christ wants us to increasingly experience the inexpressible joy of his love. That's not Paul, even though Paul's writing this. This is expressing God's heart toward you. He wants us to experience the profound security that his love affords to us. The perfect peace of his love. In short, he wants us to know the love of Christ that Paul says surpasses knowledge. So ask him to experience it. But realize that it comes at a cost. Both Paul and Hudson Taylor suffered profoundly. And yet this made them more profoundly aware of Christ's infinite love toward them. If that's not enough, there's one more request. It's going to be quick because we're uh, out of time and it's only like one line. So that helps us. This prayer comes to a climax as Paul asks for one final thing. It's a kind of summary request that encompasses all the other requests. He asks for increased transformation. And you probably could guess where that was going, right? Increased transformation. take a look back at our text here so we can see all three right there uh, in the grammar our last and final request is for our our increased transformation he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God that's the goal that you may be filled with all the fullness of God It's incredible language. Paul's asking for us to be filled with the fullness of God himself. But what's he talking about? I think our answer comes as we meditate on the temple imagery of this prayer. After both the tabernacle and the temple were built in the Old Testament, God's glory is described as filling the temple. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's the same same verb that we see in our text here. And if you look down in our text to verse 21, Paul asks for God to be glorified. So there's our glory language. 
glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. Paul never says that anywhere else in a benediction like this, in a doxology like this. It's clear that this is part of his, of his theme, that God would get glory, be glorified in the church, display his glory, if we could say it that way, in the church, which I think it, it unmistakably connects us to this temple theme. So here in this final request, Paul is asking for God's glory to fill the new temple. But there's an interesting development. People make up this new temple. Not stones, not fabric. When God's glory resides on people, they are transformed into his image, into his likeness. So Paul describes it here not as as God's glory, which he could have, but as his fullness. And asks that we would be filled literally unto, as a goal, like unto that fullness. So he's talking about our moral transformation. Our moral transformation into the image of Jesus is another way of putting it into the new humanity that God has always intended to inhabit his creation. He's asking that we would progressively come to resemble God himself in the church. Think about this. As we grow, we are the manifestation of God's glory in the new temple on the earth. You are the manifestation of God's glory, the Shekinah glory, in His new temple on the earth. As people see your Christ-empowered sacrificial love, your willingness to die for the good of other people, they are seeing the manifestation of God's glory on earth. And that's what Paul's asking for. (laughs) I mean, isn't that not amazing? It's the only fitting conclusion to the the first three chapters if you've been tracking with us all through the study of Ephesians, isn't it? Now, we've got to tie this up quickly because we still have the benediction. We haven't even covered that or the, the doxology. If there's any remaining doubt in your heart as to whether God is, is able to or wants to answer these kind of prayers. Paul obliterates the doubt in the final two verses. He ends the prayer with what's, what's called a doxology, typically, and that's just an explosion of praise to God, attributing glory to Him for all that He's done. So, so read it with me, and I think you'll see how he obliterates all of our doubts. Now, to Him, it's God, To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Paul just asked for some pretty profound things. Uh, I don't think they're very modest in his requests, right? Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Anything we could imagine. God is able to do far more exceedingly. 
according to the power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That is an incredibly motivating text for prayer. Isn't it? God wants to, and He's fully able to do far more than you could ever dream or ask Him for, or think to ask Him for. Okay? So just start asking, okay? By faith. Like Hudson Taylor. Like Paul. We think of Paul as like a man who is tenacious, and he was, in his efforts and evangelism and those kinds of things. But he was a man moving forward on his knees, praying to an infinitely powerful God to accomplish the work. He was a weak man serving a powerful God, and every other servant of Christ will amen that statement um, to us. And in this prayer, Paul intentionally sets up, he sets us up to zealously pursue a life that reflects God in the world and that manifests His glory. And he's going to spend the next three chapters of this letter helping us connect these dots. And that's what we're going to dive into starting next semester, all right? So show back up, and uh, we're, going to, we're going to start unpacking that. But for now, just, it's Christmas break, right? So let this text just encourage you on into Christmas break. You know, as we think about, we're going to be t- talking a lot about Jesus, baby Jesus, and, you know, dwelling with us in his incarnation. And this is the end goal of that, that Christ would dwell in you, in your heart. So as you connect those themes, as you meditate on Christ, may he just richly bless you um, in this Christmas season. And if this is the last time we're going to see you to the new year, uh, farewell, travel safely, and uh, have lots of time sleeping on, uh, on break. All right, let's pray.